Again, Revelation chapter 12, 1 to 12. Starting in verse 1. And a great sign appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and on her head a crown of twelve stars. She was pregnant and was crying out in birth pains in the agony of giving birth. And another sign appeared in heaven. Behold, a great red dragon, with seven heads and ten horns on his head, and on his head seven diadems. His tail swept down a third of the stars of heaven and cast them to the earth. And the dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth, so that when she bore her child, he might devour it. She gave birth to a male child, one who is to rule all the nations with a rod of iron. But her child was caught up to God and to his throne. And the woman fled into the wilderness where she has a place prepared by God, in which she is to be nourished by, for 1260 days. Verse 7. Now war arose in heaven, Michael and his angels fighting against the dragon, and the dragon and his angels fought back. But he was defeated, and there was no longer any place for them in heaven. And the great dragon was thrown down, that ancient serpent, who is called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. He was thrown down to the earth, and his angels were thrown down with him. And I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come. For the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down, who accuses them night and day, day and night before our God. And they have conquered him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony, for they have loved not their lives even unto death. Therefore rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them. But woe to you, O earth and sea, for the devil has come down to you in great wrath, because he knows that his time is short. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Let's pray. Lord God, we're thankful to be here tonight, and um, we bow before you, and we say that you are on the throne, and we just, we, we're in wonder, Lord, that you are king over the entire universe, Lord, and we ask that you'd continue to be king over our hearts and every part of it, uh, and we surrender tonight, Lord. I pray that you would speak through your word and through Taylor tonight, uh, speak exactly what you want to to each one of us, Lord, convict us, and uh, may we leave uh, different than when we came in. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen. Well, good evening, friends. It's good to see you not sitting down. You look a little different. So glad you're here. Thank you for being here. It's good to be with you. I wish, I know some of you are back where you are for a reason, but I wish you could come closer. There's so few of us. It really does feel like a family. Um, okay, here we are in Revelation 12. Oh, before I, before I jump in, I want to say, uh, oh, good, thank you. Haha, yes. Um, Anne Kemp, church member and dear friend and sister, is hosting uh, the second of what will hopefully be many um, women's nights that are out of her house this coming Tuesday. So right now it will be every other Tuesday. So this coming Tuesday, um, will you just put your hand up, Anne? If you are interested in that, it's just a real, it's a real time to be, uh, to grow in the Lord and to grow in love for one another. And just to be intimate with him and learn how to grow in him and mature in him together as women, and, and Anne is just a, just a dear uh, saint in the faith and has a lot to, to pour into you ladies. And so I, I, want, I want to encourage you as your pastor to avail yourself of that time, and that's Tuesday. So if you're interested, talk to Anne. Man, this AC, it keeps blowing my page. I saw Jake when Jake preached a couple weeks ago. <laughs> I forgot to tell you, but it blows your pages as you're trying to preach, which is fine. Um, 
If that's persecution, then okay. We've, we've, the church has had much worse. Um, there's an old proverb that goes something like this. If you want to know what water is like, don't ask the fish. You've probably heard it. If you want to know what water is like, don't ask the fish. It, why is that? Because the fish doesn't know it's in water because that's all it knows. It's surrounded by water. It's, it's never had any other environment. And this really speaks perfectly to worldview. We all have a worldview. It's the way we see the world. But oftentimes we don't, because it's so pervasive, because it colors everything that we see, and because we often grow up in it, um, we don't even know that we have one. Uh, we swim in it. Uh, like the fish, uh, we don't know what water is like. It's, the, it's our environment. We, we don't see it critically. Often until we leave it and go maybe to another culture or are challenged by a different worldview within our culture or outside of it. Um, to change the metaphor, John Calvin used a pair of glasses to say the same thing. He said that a worldview is like a pair of glasses where, you know, or if you can imagine a pair of contacts. Calvin, I don't think contacts existed when Calvin was 500 years ago when he was alive and preaching and teaching. But if they had, that'd be even better because contacts, if you just woke up and you didn't know you had any in, they would affect, you, you wouldn't necessarily know you had them. They're invisible. But they affect everything that you see. Everything that you see passes through those glasses or those lenses, or those contacts. Um, and what, what John is doing here in Revelation is actually Revelation, the book of Revelation, as we continue to talk about the kingdom of God and kind of taper in to the end of our series here on, on God's kingdom. Um, Revelation is Jesus giving to John a right worldview uh, to give to us. The book is what its name suggests. It is, it is an unveiling or a pulling back of the curtain or a revealing of what is real. In the midst of all the tumult of this life and certainly for the early church to whom this was directly written and it continues to speak to us as a church until Christ returns, they were in the midst of tumult. They were in the midst of massive persecution. And so John wanted them to know, Jesus wanted his church to know through John, this is not your reality. I'm going to pull back the curtain. I'm going to show you the proper way to view the world. And man, could we use this right now. Um, John says in his opening verses in verse 3, in fact, he says, Blessed is he who reads the words of this book out loud. And blessed is he who hears it. And blessed is he who obeys these words. So, but oftentimes we skip past that and we just think, you know, almost cursed is he. We wouldn't say that out loud, but we think a lot of Christians are terrified of the book of Revelation. Kind of like I said to the kids, they think of, when they think of the book of Revelation, they think of dragons and charts and bowls of wrath, all of which are in there, right? Um, but it's, it's not, he doesn't say cursed are those, certainly. He doesn't say afraid are those or confused are those who read this, the words of this book out loud. He says, blessed are those. The book of Revelation is written to a church in, under persecution that's confused and disoriented and being pressed. And it is the most Christ-exalting, Christ-saturated, hope-filled book, I would say, in the Bible. And that's what it's meant to give to us as Christians. Um, this is what reality is, says Jesus to John, who says it to us. This is. Not what you're seeing down here. It's Christ seated on his throne, reigning and ruling. Um, and, and what it shows is at the control center, with everything going on on earth, at the control center of the universe is Christ seated on his throne. Right, and he's right, like I said to the children, he's right at the center of the book. There's um, one way of looking at Revelation, and this is the way that I, I actually read it. 
Um, and this doesn't come from me, it comes from an old commentator. Um, but it's, instead of being a chronological, sort of this happened, then this happened, and this happened, and then at the end he returns, it's actually, it's apocalyptic literature, which was a type of ancient literature, and it, it, ancient apocalyptic literature was full of symbols, it was full of numbers, full of repetition a lot of times. John loves to repeat things in Revelation. He loves numbers. He loves the number seven, number three, the number four, and number ten. Number seven is the perfect number. It's the number of creation, um, among other things. And the way that the book unfolds is it's, it's the same thing. It's the same age, the church age, the time between the two comings of Christ, his first coming, his incarnation, where he came to save us, and his return, repeated seven times, each time with increasing intensity, okay? In the middle, so the book of Revelation, there's, there's only so many times that a third of the stars can fall out of the sky, okay? There are a lot of things that sort of... Um, that help um, build that case. I don't have time to go into them. It's not the point of the sermon. Um, but it's the same thing told over and over again, seven times with increasing intensity and detail in different ways. And in the center of it, you know, the middle number of seven is four. The fourth episode right in the center of the book is chapter 12. This passage that Nathaniel read, it's right at the bullseye. If, if Revelation is this is how the world is actually operating right at the bullseye at the center, the fourth episode of seven, John puts this episode of the woman with this child who will be a male child who will rule the nations and will bring about the downfall of Satan. And through him, his people will be reconciled to God and made more than conquerors because their lives won't be precious to them anymore because they'll be taken care of. Because they have a king who has laid his life down. Um, the birth of Jesus, and by the way, that's one indication. The fact that Revelation uh, 12 is right in the center of the book. Uh, and it's about the birth of Jesus. Much of the information of Revelation clearly ha that precedes Revelation 12. It's, already, it's, it, it's, it, it's happened past the birth of Jesus. It's stuff that happens after Jesus is born. But Revelation 12, by any measure, is about Jesus and his church. It's about the birth of this male child that's been promised in the scriptures. And that's one indication that the book of Revelation is not chronological. If it's chronological, you have a serious problem with Revelation chapter 12. Okay? That's just a side, a side point. Um, but what Revelation 12 brings us into at the core, at the hub of this book, the center of the bullseye of this target, is the birth of Jesus. His life, his death, his resurrection. What John is saying is, and what Jesus is saying to John and to us through John is that this is the central event of history. This is the thing that everything else hangs on. And only when we understand that do we properly see the world rightly. Okay, only when we let that guide us. Only when we understand Jesus Christ as the thing that all things lead to, funnel into, and then explode out from with meaning will we properly see the world. Um, verse 5 in Revelation 12 takes us back to Genesis 3, 15. I've already alluded to it, but it says that she gave birth to a male child, one who is to rule all the nations with a rod of iron. Um, and there's, a, there's meaning, 
upon meaning, upon meaning packed into this verse and this passage and the whole book of Revelation. But one of the clear meanings of this is that there's this woman, Mary, she is a virgin and she, it has been prophesied that she will have a child who will rule the nations. And that child is the Messiah and that child is the Son of God and that child is Jesus Christ. And what that, one of the things this does is it takes us, if you remember, we started, we started the first sermon with repentance. Repentance is the way that we enter into the kingdom of God. Lord, I deserve what you took. I'm a sinner. I deserve nothing but your wrath, but you have taken God's wrath in my place. This is the entrance into the kingdom. But after preaching repentance, we started in Genesis with the kingdom of God. And we, we looked at right in the middle of the curse when Adam and Eve disobey God and are separated from him and they cut themselves off from the source of life. God steps into the middle of that curse with a promise. He doesn't just wipe the plate clean with them. He could have. He would have been within his rights to say, I'm done with you. He doesn't do that. He steps, he comes to where they are, he draws them out, and he gives them a promise. And he says, one day there's going to be born a son from a woman. And there's going to be hatred between him and the serpent. And the serpent is going to bite him or crush his heel. But he's going to crush that serpent's head. And that is a picture of how at the cross where Satan did his best to bite the heel of this son. Through the cross, Jesus Christ defeated, through his own death in our place, he defeated the power of death over us. He defeated Satan, he crushed him, and, and uh, rendered him not powerless, but rendered him in many ways ineffective, although he's still alive and he's still working, as we can see today, he... he, he he began the process of the end for Satan. He had the decisive victory at the cross. Um, so this verse and this chapter take us back. They don't just speak about the birth of this son of God, this Messiah. They take us all the way back to the, basically the beginning of the scriptures, right when our first parents fell. And they say, this son has, um, he has been prophesied. He has been spoken about. We've been waiting for him for centuries the promise of him shoots throughout all the Old Testament. And um, it doesn't just take us back there, though. It takes us even farther back. If you've seen this chapter in verses 4 and 7 through 9, um, it takes us back to the fall of Satan, which probably predates, we don't know exactly, but it probably predates the fall even of, um, even of Adam and Eve. And in Luke 10, there's this scene where in the Gospels, in Luke 10, where Jesus sends out his 72, his disciples, and he, he gives them his authority. He gives them all authority, and he says, go, and uh, he gives them authority over what I call the three Ds, disease, death, and demons. And he goes, you know, there are a lot of instructions, but he goes, go in my authority, and, you know, if there's, if there's someone that receives you, stay with them and preach the gospel and proclaim that the kingdom has come. It's not... It's not going to come one day. It's, come, it's coming and it's come with me because I'm the king. And he gives them authority over these things that have entered the world through our rebellion. And they come back and what's, what's, how, what are they like? They're not dejected. They're pumped. They're like, woohoo, man, even the demons are subject to us, Lord. And dead people are being raised all because of the authority that he's given them. And he says two things to them. He says two things. One of them is sobering and the other one is wonderful. And the first thing he says that's sobering is, whoa. Chill out, basically. This is the Taylor translation. Well, chill out. Uh, that's awesome. But there's something, he says, this is, these are his words, don't rejoice in the fact that the demons are subject to you. 
Rejoice in something that's way more amazing, more powerful, and that is going to take a lot more work. And that is this. Rejoice that your names are written in, the, in heaven. Rejoice that I'm going to the cross and I'm going to do something that's going to, I'm going to stand in your place and endure the white hot wrath of God that should be going against you, but that I will take in your place as your shield. And I'm going to bring you back to God and I'm going to rise from the dead and you're going to be alive in me and you're going to receive my spirit. Rejoice in that. Rejoice in the great work that I've come to do. I am the king and I am coming to bring you back into the kingdom and my kingdom is going to spread over all things. And the disease and the demons and all that stuff, that's wonderful. But those are ancillary. The fact that you were brought back in as sons and daughters with full inheritance, my inheritance, rejoice in that. So that's the first thing he says. Rejoice that your names are written in heaven. The second thing he says is just strange. It's in verse 18 of Luke 10. He says, it's almost like they're, they're pumped about everything that's happened. And he just looks up into heaven and almost, it seems like he's kind of spaced out and goes somewhere. Like he has a flashback. He says, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. Strange for a lot of reasons. It's like, what? This guy, what are you talking? This guy cannot just be a man. What is he? Was he there? Was he there when Satan and a third of the angels that were in league with him rebelled against God as Satan tried to put himself in the place of God and they got kicked out of heaven? Um, Well, yes, he was there, and he may indeed be talking about that. But just like in chapter 12, where we see this phrase, basically, Satan fell from heaven. We see that repeated four times in chapter 12, about the birth and the coming and the life and the death and the conquest of our Lord Jesus Christ. Four times it says, in various ways, Satan fell from heaven. Jesus, in the context, scholars are pretty much united on this, isn't, he may be talking about the fact that he was there. Because he indeed was there when Satan fell and was pushed out of heaven and lost. But he is certainly, if he is talking about that, he is linking that to an even greater fall. An even more decisive conquest. And what he is saying is this. What you are seeing with your eyes isn't just demons. This doesn't come for free. It's not just demons being cast out and people being raised from the dead again. I am... I am vanquished, I have come to vanquish the work of the enemy, to crush the head of Satan, to be the sin sacrifice, and through death to kill death, and the power of death and hell. And that is what the fall of Satan is all about, okay? It isn't happening one day. One day he will finish what he started. But what he did, we're not waiting for the vanquishing of Satan. We're not waiting for Satan to fall. We're not waiting for Satan to no longer be able to deceive the nations. We're not waiting for Christ to reign. When he came, he came as king. And he came to establish his reign on the earth. And he came to take our place in life and in death. And he took the fall for us. And when he did that, Satan lost his dominion. And he lost his power. And that is why in this chapter, that's right at the center of Revelation, that focuses on the central event of history being the incarnation of the Son of God, we see the fall of Satan repeated four different times. This is the major and decisive work of God for us 
the defeat of Satan and the establishment of the reign of God through the person of Jesus Christ. Um, like I said, it's mentioned four times, the fall of Satan is mentioned five times, actually, four to five times, depending on verse four in chapter 12. Um, again, the incarnation of the Son of God, of Jesus Christ, is the decisive and central event in history. It's the center that holds everything together. It's the hub of the wheel. It's the bullseye. It's the funnel point. Um, notice, just as a bit of a side point, not really a side point, but the rest of Revelation 12, the rest of what Nathaniel read, and then on beyond that, talks about and kind of folds in um, the, the coming of this son who will rule the nations with a rod of iron to the rule of his followers, the church, and how they are more than conquerors because they are laying their lives down and they are witnessing to the fact that the gospel is that Jesus Christ is king and he has come and he has laid his life down for us and he has taken it up again and he is alive. And he is reigning. Um, we see that in verse 6 and verses 10 through 12. And this, what this is, is if you look at verse 10, for instance, um, the AC has blown my pages hither and thither. But if you look at verse 10, for instance, and I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, now the salvation, the power, and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come. And here's, here's one of the four instances. For the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down. With the coming of Christ, with his life and with his death and work on the cross and, and the, the fact that he rose from the dead signaling that his payment was sufficient for us. Um, what we see is this is like a compression of the great commission where Jesus says all authority has been given to me. Therefore go and make disciples of all nations and um, of, of, of the great commission and of the whole book of Acts. It's what we see in the whole book of Acts of um, the persecuted church going forth and seeing because Christ is seated as king on his throne, because he's done the decisive thing, because he's crushed the head of the serpent um, and taken death for us, he's removed the stinger out of death. And so we see his, his people going forth with the te their testimony, the testimony of Jesus Christ, and not counting their lives precious to them, but laying them down, just like, just like their leader, just like their king. Also notice, and this is a bit incidental, but in chapter 13, and we can't go there. So we see his church, um, the king and his kingdom, and uh, his church uh, more than conquerors through Christ who love them. But then in chapter 13, we, what we see is, we see these beasts, the leopard and the bear, and so on and so forth. And what that is, very clearly, is um, it's the state. It's these nation states that arise throughout history until Christ comes again. And at the time, the Roman state... The Roman state was, was the biggest uh, player on the world stage. Um, and if you looked at the state of the church, you would have thought, well, they were the ones in control. But again, one of the big messages of the book of Revelation is, no, that's not reality. What's reality is that Christ is on his throne and you are more than conquerors through Christ who loved you. And the state, though, is a, it's set up to be an imitative a pseudo savior. It imitates a lot of the things that Jesus does. It's even killed and it comes back to life. And what it says very clearly in chapter 13 is that people will worship the state. People will look to the state to provide for them in ways that only God can. Um, and many, many Christians have fallen prey to this. It's easy to do in these times. It was probably easy to do um, back when John wrote this as well. But what we need to do with this is realize that Christ is the king, that he is on his throne, that nations come and go. Where is Rome? Where is Greece? Where is Persia? 
Where is Egypt? Where will America be? Where will China be? God raises up nations and God deposes nations. But one thing is for sure, Christ is on his throne and his kingdom is spreading throughout all the earth. And it will continue to be so until his glory covers the earth as the waters cover the sea. Okay? And that is where our hope is. So if we've placed our hope in the state, not if we've been good citizens and voted and been concerned. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about if we've, if we've worshipped the state. If it, it's, it's called statism. That's called statism, the state coming in and filling a void that only God can have. Um, and we see that in our society and we see that even among Christians. If that's happened with us, we need to repent. We need to repent. Um, look at verse 7 in chapter 13. If you have your Bible open, if you don't, it's okay. Verse 7 says, all authority, is talking about the state, all authority was given to it for a time. Given. Who gave it? God did. God is the one who raises up kings and who gives to nations authority for his own purposes. Jesus is the one who has all authority to give now. Um, So like I said to the kids at the beginning, we don't just see that Jesus Christ as the conquering king doing the decisive work in his incarnation, in his birth, in his life, in his death, in his resurrection, and now in his reign. At the center of Revelation, we also see it at the ends. John is very clear about this. We see in chapter 1 and in the end of the book, chapters 19 through 21, um, this powerful, resurrected Christ figure um, dominating the pages of this book, held forth to the persecuted church saying, he is alive, he is reigning, and you with him no matter what happens. And actually, his kingdom will go forth as you lay your life down. Um, And as you give your life away, just like his kingdom went forth as he laid his life down on the cross, right? Um, But this picture dominates not just the center of the book, but the beginning and the end. Um, In Revelation 1, we won't go there, but John hears this amazing voice like a trumpet, and he looks behind him, and he sees this astonishing picture of the risen Christ. And what does he do when he sees Jesus? He doesn't, yeah, he doesn't run up and say, buddy, it's been so long. It's been like 50 years. I'm on the island of Patmos now. He doesn't say that. He hits the deck. Because when you see the resurrected Christ, that's what you do. He is overwhelming. But Jesus comes and he lays his right hand of power on John and he says, fear not. Fear not. I am the first and the last. In other words, I'm the creator. Okay? And the living one. I'm life itself. And behold, I was dead. But I'm alive forevermore. I was dead. How precious is that verb, was? I was dead. But I'm alive forevermore and what? I hold the keys of death and hell. How intimidating is death and how intimidating is hell if Jesus Christ, if you're in him and he is your king and your savior and he holds the keys. It's 0% intimidating. He opens the door wide and says, come on with me. I've paid the price. I bought these keys with my own body and soul. The stinger is gone. You have nothing left to fear. Right? So that's Revelation 1. The key master sets the tone for the book. It's why it's a blessing to the church. This is your reality. And then Revelation 19 through 21, same thing, but um, we could give a, diff- a different title to it. Um, Jesus, the tattooed King of Kings and Lord of Lords. I could say something different if the kids weren't here, but it's an amazing, overwhelming picture of, the, of Christ who will return, not in weakness, but in strength to decimate all who have not hidden in him by faith. And um, It's an amazing picture, but one of the things in this picture at the end of Revelation that we see, and there's a lot of controversy about about Revelation 20, but in Revelation 20, it says that 
Um, it's the time of the millennium, and we won't go into it much, the time, of the, the time of the reign of Christ, and there are different historic positions on this. But one of the things it says is that Satan, he won't be completely vanquished yet. He'll, re, he'll return for a while, but during this time he won't be able to deceive. He'll be locked away, as it were, and he'll be, if you can imagine it like this, he'll be like a dog on a chain who can still, within the, the vicinity of that chain, do a lot of damage, but he's limited. What it says is he will no longer be able to deceive the nations. Think about this. When Christ came, think about every nation that was enthralled to darkness. Even the Jews. Every 100% of nations, every single nation on the face of the earth, even, the, even among the Jews, they crucified their Messiah. John 1, Jesus stepped down into, dark, into, into darkness as the light of the world. And he was extinguished, as it were, for our sake. Although through his crucifixion, he rose. And the light has been shining ever brighter until this day. And speaking of that, think about that 2,000 years ago versus now. As much darkness as there is, admittedly, there's so much darkness. Because the amillennial position, that's what I am, it's, it shouldn't have even said that, it's fine. Is that as the darkness grows, the light grows. As the light grows, the darkness grows. The, weeds and the, the wheat and the tares grow together. But think about the difference between 2,000 years ago when every nation was deceived and now. We in our own lifetime, in, in this generation, could live to see every single nation having the word of God in their own language. In the past 200 years, the gospel has gone out at a pace and at a range that it never has in the past 1800 years of church history. It has been a time of amazing world mission. The nations are no longer deceived. There is light everywhere and it goes forth every day. And we have the nations, because of the rise of cities in the 21st century, we have the nations in every city. We are one of the most international cities. This is one of the most international areas, especially south of West Time, we're in the world. We have the nations right here. They are no longer deceived. And it's one of our great privileges to get to go undeceive them by preaching the light of the gospel of Jesus Christ. He is not just savior. He is that, but he is also the reigning king. And his kingdom is going forth as we proclaim the gospel and lay our lives down and don't count them dear. Um, this is the great hope of the church. And this is our great hope. And I just want to say sort of as drawing, in drawing to a close to a story or two and then I'm done, that, that hey, the point of this isn't to solve every problem in Revelation. Nobody will ever do that. You know, like it's a, it's a difficult book. It's a beautiful book. It's a rich book. Part of the point of this sermon was to help you see that it is, it is to have you leave with hope, to have you leave anchored in the hope that Jesus Christ is Lord and Savior and he's reigning not one day. He's reigning now. He started the reign when he came the first time and he consummates it when he comes again and his kingdom is going forth and we have a part, to, he's given us a part to play in the spreading of that kingdom. Isn't that amazing? As his spirit is in us and as we proclaim the gospel and as we see people's lives change, as we see environments change, as we see the nations undeceived. Um, but what I do want to do, not unlock the Gordian knot of, uh, cut the Gordian knot of Revelation, but I do want to say before drawing to a close that as you Think about the book. As you study the book, knowing it's a blessing and not something that should induce fear, knowing that it's Christ-exalting and Christ-saturated, if you ever hear it taught, whether through a book or through a preacher, in a way that draws attention to the spokes in the wheel, the dragons, the rapture, 
the tribulation, the bowls of wrath, and on, the hornets, and on and on I could go. No, sir. If you ever, if you ever sit under a teaching that does not put the spotlight on the decisive, central victory of Jesus Christ through his incarnation, through his life of obedience in our place, through his, through his atoning expiatory death on the cross for us, through his defeating death and taking hell in our place and enduring the right white-hot wrath of God in our place and saying on the cross, it is finished, the work is done, and crushing the head of the serpent and rising victorious on the third day and ascending to the right hand of the Father. Psalm 110 is the most quoted psalm in the New Testament. And Psalm 110 says, the Father says to the Son, sit here while I make of your enemies a footstool for your feet. He has conquered. We are more than conquerors. If that is not what is spotlighted for you in the book of Revelation, in your life right now, amidst the tumult going on, you are on a wrong track. And I want you to be undeceived. That is the hope that we have in Christ. That is the hope. The rest of the stuff is spokes, spokes on the wheel, okay? Two quick stories and then, and then we'll, I'll pray. And, the, and the, last, the, the first one is just one more story in the book of Revelation. I couldn't, I couldn't preach this and not bring this sermon up. Next week we'll finish with the last chapters of Revelation and the first chapters of Genesis tie the whole Bible together a little bit, show how it ties together. But the, my two favorite chapters in the book are ones I haven't mentioned yet, Revelation 4 and 5. Revelation 4 and 5 are two of the most beautiful, powerful chapters in the whole Bible. And really what they are is they're a micro-biblos. They're a small, they're a Bible, the whole, the whole arc of salvation history compressed into two chapters. And really what you see is Speaking of apocalypse, which means an unveiling or a, a revealing, the revelation. Apocalypse is the Greek, the Greek uh, title of the book. Um, what happens in the previous three chapters of Revelation is what we usually hear preached on when we hear Revelation preached on, the, the, you know, the seven churches. But really, that's kind of an introduction. Um, what happens after that is in, in chapter 4, verse 1, Jesus says to John, come up here. All this stuff going on down here, it's real, but it's not decisive. He takes him to the nerve center, the control center of the universe. He pulls back the curtain to heaven and he says, this, this is where it's at. This is what determines everything. And what does John see? In short, he sees this in chapter 4, God on his throne. But he doesn't see God. He just sees the emanations of God. And God's surrounded by these circles of these amazing creatures that if you get too close, you're toast. They can't even look at God and they're and they're crying, holy, holy, holy. And they're like these terrifying creatures. And he's surrounded by these saints that are clad in white. Um, that have been made white by the blood of the lamb. But the blood of the lamb's not mentioned yet. He's just surrounded by all these, uh, these white, pure saints. And these amazing creatures. And there's fire and lightning around his throne. And he's unapproachable. He's a beautiful creator. Amazing, powerful creator God. But if, you're full, if you have sin on you, don't even think about it. He's unapproachable. And then at the, right at the end of chapter 4, as chapter 5 starts to unfold, um, there's this book that John sees. And it's a book and it's sealed. It's written on both sides, which means it's a complete plan that God has for all of human history from beginning to end. And it's written on both sides and it's sealed perfectly with seven seals. It can't be unlocked. In other words, what, what that means, it's, there's, the book's full of symbol, right? 
Revelation is full of symbol. What that means is God has a perfect plan for history, but it cannot be brought to pass because, because we were given dominion over God's creation and we lost it. And we severed ourselves from God through our rebellion. So John begins to weep because nobody is found worthy to open the book and to execute God's perfect plan for all things. And then someone lays his hand on John's shoulder and what does he say? He says, weep not. And he points to this one. And John looks and what does he see? He sees a lion, this amazing being, but he looks as if, he looks like a lamb that's standing, that was slain. Okay, and this lamb that was slain, who presents himself, he's got power, but he presents himself meekly. He comes up, he walks up to the ancient of days, he approaches the unapproachable, cuts through all the defenses and all the circles, and he grabs the book out of the hand of the ancient of days, and he opens it. In other words, he sets into process, into perfect play, the unfolding of God's perfect plan. And all of creation in concentric circles starts to fall. First circle, next circle, all of creation outward, like an atom bomb of praise and glory saying, worthy are you, worthy are you to receive everything that God receives, honor and glory and power and praise, for you have done the work of bringing us back to God and of beginning the process of restoring all things. And it's this amazing picture. Um, He's a lamb who had been slain. How did he conquer? He conquered through the cross. Power through weakness. And that's what we see here in chapter 12. How are we to conquer? Chapter 12, verse 11, and they have conquered. It's talking about the saints, talking about us who've been washed in the blood of the lamb. They have conquered him by the blood of the lamb, And by the word of their testimony, for they love not their lives even unto death. For they love not their lives even unto death. So what I want to say um, to that in closing is this. First of all, take heart. Like I said last week at the end of the sermon. I want you to take heart in this really tumultuous time. I want you to get a new worldview. This worldview. The worldview that John, at the end of the Bible, at the end of this perfect book that God has for us, Um, gives us to say, be encouraged. Christ is reigning and you with him no matter what happens. You know, fire ants, when um, they've discovered that when fire ants are attacked, they can replicate up to 300 times more than they do when they're just left alone. And I feel like such as we've seen throughout church history, that's exactly what happens to the church when the church is persecuted. As she lays, when she's not persecuted, she gets complacent. And she's ineffective. When she is persecuted and she gets uncomfortable, she starts to preach the gospel and to not count our lives as precious and to lay her life down. And the people start to be discipled and the church starts to grow. Um, Let me finish with with a story. And it's a short story. I know that I've gone long. Um, It's out of Mark 4. And we all know it, or many of us do. It's it's, uh, Jesus, he's exhausted and he's been, uh, and he's in the boat with his disciples, many of whom are fishermen. And he's asleep and a storm, he's asleep in the boat, he's exhausted from ministry and there's a storm that comes on the Sea of Galilee and um, a lot of these guys are fishermen but they, this is such a storm that they get really scared and they think they're going to die. And they wake Jesus up and what does he say to him? He chastises him, doesn't he? He wakes, he wakes up and he says, he says, um, Oh, you of little faith. It's like, yeah, it's like one word. It's like, oh, you little faith ones in the Greek. How would you like to be called that? That's me. 
But here, it's what he says next that's interesting. He says, oh, you of little faith, why are you still afraid? And I just want to draw your attention to one word, still. Why do you think Jesus said that? Why do you think Jesus said, why are you still afraid? And I think the reason that he said still is because they had been with him. They had seen him calm the sea. They had seen him raise the dead. They had been with him. And he is saying, I am, I am the son of God. I am the God who made all things, who spoke all things into being. Okay? You've seen what I can do, and you're about to see something far more amazing. Uh, why are you still afraid? You have nothing to fear. I'm with you. I'm never going to leave you or forsake you. Um, he's, given us, he's given us our marching orders. He's never going to leave us. The way to conquer is to lay our lives down and to bear testimony, to tell our story and to tell his story. And um, our security is, and they have conquered him by the blood of the lamb. In other words, it's this objective thing. His blood in history shed for us that cleanses us. His life and death that bring us back to God. It's like Kenny was saying earlier. It's either you look to the king in repentance and faith and you're brought into his family through his grace and mercy or you're standing on your own, you're outside and you're doomed. You're doomed to be cast out forever into darkness and misery. Um, and this is... This is the story that we get to proclaim. This is the truth that we get to proclaim. The king is reigning, um, and we get to be brought back to him uh, through what he's done. So let me, let me pray. Lord, I just thank you for your, the hope that we have, um, that you have come, that your kingdom has come and is coming, and that we have a part to play in that um, as we look to you for our hope and not to the things around us, Lord. I pray that you would... You would make us to count not our lives precious because we know that you've taken care of everything for us, that you are reigning, that you laid your life down for us, that you beat death through death. And Lord, I pray that we would proclaim that um, to the ends of the earth, to our neighbors and coworkers, Lord, and that you would be our hope. Lord, fill us with your spirit. Uh, fix our eyes on you. Thank you that you're reigning and that you're returning. Thank you that um, there is still time for us to proclaim the gospel, for people to flee to you, to run to you. Um, thank you. Thank you for your mercy. And thank you that you are coming again. We love you. We bless you. In Jesus' name, amen.